0: What does the future hold for healthcare and how will the changes on the horizon impact patients, physicians, payers, and hospitals? The Scope is a podcast that explores the advances in treatment, technology, and the ways in which we interface with healthcare. I'm your host, Scott Mayer, CEO of Mobile Anesthesiologist. And each week, I will speak with individuals who are working at the leading edge of medicine to find out how innovation and outside-the-box thinking are revolutionizing the industry and impacting our lives. Carrie Nixon is the co-founder and managing partner of Nixon Gwilt Law, a law firm focused exclusively on healthcare innovation. She also serves as special advisor to Impactful Impactful Capital, a healthcare venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley. Carrie is an expert in healthcare law and policy issues. She provides counseling in healthcare regulatory compliance matters and strategic advice regarding business models and healthcare transactions. Carrie represents digital healthcare health companies and healthcare startups, along with hospitals and health systems, individual physicians and large physician groups, pharmacies and post-acute care providers. As a longtime attorney for a variety of clients in the assisted living and long term care industry, Carrie has on the ground experience with the unique challenges facing those who serve our aging population. She has successfully defended these clients against malpractice claims and deficiency citations, helping them to navigate the ever changing regulatory and risk management landscape. Carrie advises and advocates for her clients from every angle using legal frameworks, business acumen, and a broad network of expertise and influence to achieve target outcomes. She received her JD from the University of Virginia School of Law. Prior to attending law school, Carrie worked for a senior leader in the US House of Representatives as deputy policy director. Carrie, thank you so much for joining. We are so excited to talk to you today. So welcome, welcome to the wonderful podcast we're going to have today.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invitation, and I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Perfect. Let's jump right in. I'd love, you know, love to hear more about your law firm. It's at the forefront, you know, Nixon Gwilt is at the forefront of helping healthcare innovators kind of get off the ground and get their ideas to market. You know, what are the biggest barriers that, you know, they're coming across when they're introducing innovation to such to an industry that's such a large component of our economy and, you know, us as a population?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, as you have mentioned, our law firm focuses specifically on healthcare innovation, and that is very intentional. A traditional health law practice uh, tends to serve large um, established entities that can be very bureaucratic, that tend to be very slow moving, and have a very low risk tolerance. Healthcare innovators are an entirely different breed of animal. Um, they are moving fast. They are interested in really pushing the envelope in the name of innovation. And, you know, it's, it's really a different type of a, a, a client for us to work with at the law firm. Um, to my knowledge, we are the only law firm that focuses exclusively sort of in this space. Um, and I think that is a really great and interesting space to be in right now um, you know it is it is always important to me to be doing something that is that i view to be meaningful and i truly believe that you know healthcare innovation uh, is critical as we as we move forward um, you know into providing increased access for patients and better outcomes for patients overall um, so you know, you mentioned that we help innovators get off the ground. Um, you know, get out into the market. That is that is absolutely the case. Um, you know, they, they, innovators do face some significant barriers um, in in the healthcare landscape. It is, in fact, and this is sort of a little known fact: healthcare is the most highly regulated industry in the U.S. It recently surpassed the nuclear nuclear energy landscape, right. Wow. In terms of, uh, its regulatory infrastructure. So, you know, it is absolutely the case that, uh, that, you know, this complex regulatory structure is something that folks who come to the market with a new idea who may not be familiar as players in the healthcare space, but they have, they have, you know, a digital health, um, uh, intervention or technology that they're really excited about implementing are pretty surprised by this the complexity um, and and the regulatory landscape that they face. Um, and this is this this regulatory landscape can be a real barrier to innovation. It, it is absolutely the case that the laws and regulations in healthcare regularly lag behind. Uh, the new digital health technologies that are out there, the new devices that are people constantly, people are constantly thinking of. And so the result is, you know, by the time a new regulation is passed or a new law is passed, the digital health innovations that are, that are out there in the market or developing have already outpaced sort of the scope of that regulation or law, um, where those innovations haven't even been contemplated yet. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, aren't encompassed by the law or the regulation. And and that results in a lot of gray areas, um, and lack of clarity and where there is lack of clarity, you know, there can be sort of lack of adoption, um. I'll give you an example, if it's useful, of, of, of an area where we saw this um, and experienced this directly recently, and that is in the area of telehealth, right? And, you know, since the, the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw telehealth, um, you know, absolutely explode as a critically necessary method of providing access to care. Absolutely, There is no reason that it should have taken a pandemic for that to happen, <laughs> But the background is that a law around, the inter- around telehealth was introduced in 1997 when the technology around telehealth was very, very new. And the notion behind it was really, let's make sure that we're connecting patients in more rural areas uh, to specialists that may be in uh, urban areas in, in the big city, right, three or four hours away. And the way that we can do that is by having those rural patients going to their rural health clinics, setting up an appointment uh, and and porting in using the equipment in the rural health clinic for a virtual visit to the big city and the specialist there. Right. That construct for telehealth and the reimbursement associated with it for Medicare beneficiaries did not change, has not changed. Yes. Right. So 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 the result was when the COVID pandemic came around, the only mechanism we had in place for Medicare beneficiaries, the largest patient population in the country to get virtual access to virtual care wasn't really available to them without a temporary waiver and and change in in what could happen. Right. And that's just crazy that that um, that sort of delay. In getting um, a, a technology out there, um, you know, uh, and and letting sort of the laws and the regs just kind of wither while the technology continues to evolve is is a prime example of um, a barrier that a lot of innovators face.
0: I mean, you going through what you just mentioned in terms of that, I mean, you become. Kind of the, the, the partner with a lot of these entrepreneurs or the, these really innovative companies, like you said, that may not understand the depth of compliance and rules and regulations when they're entering the healthcare space, even if they have an amazing idea, to have to go to them and say, because if you look at anybody, if you talk to anybody rationally, telehealth, like you said, should have been around for decades, has been available or to be around, yeah. and never changed. And people, you know, you, you get a, a great rational entrepreneur that goes, I have a great solution oh, but here's the 19 layers of red tape that I have to go through just to be able to get the, get something yep. that is so feasible off the ground. I mean, I can imagine that you probably hear a lot of, uh, you know, you must be a very patient person because you have a lot of entrepreneurs that you work with that want to move at lightning speed to get out. And you have to kind of slow them down to say, unfortunately, it doesn't change that quickly. With a great example of what you just mentioned, about 25 years ago, them using that same law with telehealth to apply, you know, in 2020, which made no sense whatsoever. So I, c- I can just imagine how much they lean on you and, and your first
1: yeah, you know, it's, it's funny, for, for, especially for folks that, you know, come from outside the, the healthcare um, industry. It's very, very frustrating to them. Um, you know, we have a, a client um, company whose founders actually came from um, the alcoholic beverage control industry, right, ABC, so also a very highly regulated industry. They had a great idea in the healthcare space that they wanted to implement. Uh, fortunately, you know, they knew enough to know that they didn't know everything they needed to know. And they came to us and the, but they said, hey, listen, we're used to really highly regulated um, industries and having to navigate, you know, the complexities of that. I said, great. But, but let me tell you, I think they would would absolutely say at this point, sort of two or three years later in working with them, that the healthcare industry is way harder.
0: Wake up call. Way harder. And it's
1: you know, it's it's tough. It it um it's it's tough, it, you know, I wish it was not that way. You've really got to balance the need for regulations that protect patient safety um, with innovation. And and that can be a tough balance to strike.
0: You know, Carrie, you mentioned that, you know, you're the only firm that you know of that is focused exclusively on this kind of healthcare innovation and startup um, type of focus. What you know, you mentioned having kind of meaningful work or wanting to make a positive impact. You know, is, is that what drove you to wanting to specialize your firm in this and build kind of a firm that focuses on this for for the industry? I mean, what led you to your kind of career path to really want this to be kind of your future and, and your mission?
1: Yeah, so you know, I got my first taste of healthcare policy uh, when I worked on Capitol Hill um, just after graduating from undergraduate, um, and you know, I happened into a job on Capitol Hill. Um, you know, it's it's not an uncommon story. It's sort of someone who is young and hungry, and um, uh, you know, at least marginally capable, ends up. Uh, being, you know, ends up landing a lot more responsibility for for uh, you know policy making uh, than they have any business like actually doing. So, you know, age of twenty two, I was um, I became the assistant um, policy director uh, for the leadership office that I worked for, and um, I got assigned uh, the healthcare policy task force um, as one of my responsibilities. And during that time, the Children's Health Insurance Program was winding its way, um, through Congress. And I thought that was really interesting. And so, you know, my plan had been to go to law school. And when I did that and graduated from law school, I decided to join, um, a large firm in DC that had, um, you know, a healthcare practice and kind of got my basic healthcare chops there, healthcare law chops there. Um, you know, fast forward, I sort of, you know, I did that. I did big, the big law thing. I, um, undertook my own entrepreneurial endeavor, getting a a nonprofit policy organization stood up. And then I came back to the the practice of law because it was the year was 2010 at that point. Uh, The Affordable Care Act passed, and I thought there would be some new opportunities out there um, for some very interesting players to make change in the place, in the space. So, you know, I started my firm uh, initially kind of focusing on health law. And after a few years, uh, I realized, and, and my now partner, Rebecca Bult, realized that the clients we really enjoyed working with the most are those who are really trying to move the needle. They've got, they've, they've got a great idea, and they are really trying to move the needle on patient outcomes and patient care. And, you know, where there are some gray areas or there's some uncertainties, they're not going to hesitate to try to push and innovate in that space, right? They want to stay compliant. They don't want to get in trouble. They certainly want to protect patient safety, but but they also are really committed to innovating to make a difference in a space where, frankly, there's a lot of enough, uh, there's a lot of difference to be made.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. And and you mentioned, you know, being able to persevere, having that passion to say. I'm behind this because that's, that's at least in my experience where you have a lot of people that just give up or become complacent as they sense the barriers, they feel all the pressure, they keep hearing the nose or that's now how things get done. And then they fall into place with the antiquated system versus wanting to push through. And, I, and like you said, I think it's really an innate characteristic for somebody to have that motivation, that passion to try to kind of burst through, especially in an industry, like you said, that always has 19 layers of, of different, you know, bureaucracy or rules and compliance to kind of get through. Um, when it comes to it, you know, what, you know, you shared a great example about the telehealth perspective and even the, the alcoholic beverage, you know, client that, you know, kind of came into this space. What, what other great, you know, kind of client stories or examples or things that, that really kind of hone in on, on why you're doing what you're doing and and the difference that your clients are making in the industry today?
1: Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, so, so I'll talk about, um, in the pediatric space, right? We have uh, a tremendous founder, female founder, who is a physical therapist. Um, She focuses uh, in the pediatric space, and she realized that if she can make physical therapy exercises fun for pediatric patients. They are gonna, you know, they're gonna enjoy doing them, um, and they're gonna make much, much, much better progress. So, she has developed a way, a digital health platform that um, that gamifies, uh, you know, physical therapy exercises that are very much tailored to it to an individual patient's needs, and they have seen such tremendous improvements in outcomes for pediatric patients who have had. You know, serious surgeries that they have needed to to recover from, um, and those those outcomes have improved because those children are excited about doing their exercises. They want to succeed at them, and they're motivated to do so. Right? So, so you know, that's a great example. I think um, of and of of an innovator who herself is a provider going hey, I've figured out a, a, a sort of path to success here that really seems to work for the patients I serve. Let me now bring this this, um, this path and this digital health platform to others in the space so that they can benefit from it as well. So, you know, that's, that's one of my... Um, favorite examples if anyone wants to check out augment therapy um Lindsay watson's a great founder
0: wow that's a great that's a great story it seems like he's such a great and like kind of novel concept of kids want to have fun right and they don't want to go through therapy recovery when like come schooling educate like but, but Adding an element where they can enjoy it and it could be something that they look forward to obviously changes the entire game in terms of getting them to commit and you know to that that work which obviously is is a is, is a huge you know inflection point of of them you know improving getting better and recovering um, and I love that story when it comes you mentioned kind of a couple of things regarding the, this example the telehealth example the you know in that gray area what what do you usually recommend to your healthcare startups when it comes to they have their novel idea. It makes a lot of sense. It improves patient outcomes. Is it trying to go down? Is it dual paths of trying to go down, maybe trying to change policy or, you know, really pushing that envelope? Or is it, okay, here are the paths that are open to us today. Like you mentioned that gray space of, you know, here's where we can play in it now. What, what do you, what do you kind of advise from that side? Cause I know at least me in, in kind of as a healthcare entrepreneur, several times in my career, I, I would always kind of get fumbled with the frustration of trying to push through to actually make a policy change or change the industry from a norm or standardization versus saying, you know, what are there openings today that allow us to do what we really want to do? And we can play that game of what's available to us today. And so I'd love to hear kind of your thought of what you really kind of guide your, your startup entrepreneurs to do when they have that, that, you know, great, great idea and and, and really want to get it off the ground.
1: Yeah, so it is absolutely a two-pronged approach, right? It's a little bit of both. It is, you know, first of all, identifying uh, existing opportunities, uh, you know, in the healthcare space that allow for uh, a revenue model to be associated with this innovation, right? Because... The innovation ain't going to be there if there's no revenue model to support it, right? <laughs> yep. So, so that's kind of that's kind of thing number one, and and there are you know existing opportunities out there that that less and less of people just plain aren't aware of. Um, it is frequently the case that we have you know innovators come to us in in a pretty early stage with. Um, an idea that they're super excited about, but they don't have any idea how to get paid for it. Um, and so that's a big part of, we, of what we do. Um, oftentimes, especially in the very early stages is to help them figure out how, you know, what is the business model here? Like how can, how can we um, generate revenue around this and make sure that we get this innovation funded and out there in the market in a way that makes sense. Now, having said that, it is also absolutely the case that a large part of our uh, role is also to assist those innovators in advocating for change, changes to policies that, uh, that can impact them. And <laughs> this, this, is a, this, is a, this is a very timely discussion. So the final Medicare physician fee schedule was released last night. Um, and for those who don't know much about that, um, the Medicare physician fee schedule, the home health um, uh, prospective payment system, these rules that are released by CMS annually each each year um, contain new types of reimbursement opportunities um, or care and delivery models that can absolutely be um Um, implemented through new technologies in many cases. It is the case that when CMS, you know, uh, puts these rules into effect, they draft, they start off with a draft rule that they release in July, right? Um, And so, for example, in July, the Medicare Physician Schedule proposed rule came out, and CMS says, we want to implement, we, we think we're going to make some changes that are going to be helpful to the remote therapeutic monitoring space, for example. And, um, you know, that is a realm that is, that is of interest to folks that have um, software as a medical device platforms that can be used in monitoring patients um, and improving their outcomes. So this is very, very relevant. So, so, you know, the proposed rule comes out and then there's a 60-day comment period Whereby any kind of stakeholder has the opportunity to submit comments to CMS and say, "And say, hey, we really like this aspect of what you're proposing, but you know what, this part of it isn't going to work. And by the way, here's how we've seen these use cases work on the ground um, in real life. And so maybe you should consider also doing this to make them more adoptable, um, to make them work. And so that um, we often assist our clients in crafting." Um, You know, comments to those rules and helping them um, to, you know, make their case to the policymakers at CMS who, frankly, don't have a lot of on the ground um, in the trenches insight, make those use cases to CMS so that CMS can incorporate that kind of on-the-ground, in-the-trenches feedback into their policy making decisions. Um, It is also the case that we are involved with organizations like the American uh, Telemedicine Association uh, that are very involved in advocating for, you know, changes in healthcare innovation policy. And that's something that's a really important role that, that we don't necessarily always play on behalf of one specific client, but we play on behalf of the industry that we represent as a whole.
0: You know, to to give some kind of optimism, because I know a lot of people, as soon as you say, you know, the rule is kind of in place, the draft rule, and then you're going back to kind of propose hey, have you thought about this? And, and it's really the operators that are coming back, right? Because it's the things they haven't thought about where the people that, like you mentioned, are in the trenches living it and seeing the every aspect of it on an everyday basis. And they need to be represented when these large rules are coming down. Are you are you feeling that, that and seeing that the government and even payers, commercial payers overall, are they end up being open to hearing some of this and actually adopting and adapting some of what they put into place? Because there's just so much sometimes negative, a kind of a, a connotation or negativity around I'm never going to be heard. They're never going to understand what mm-hmm. are they really thinking when mm-hmm. they're doing something like this?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. And the answer is no, not enough. Right. <clears throat> it, is, it is absolutely the case in my view and in my experience that especially um, the government is not as in touch with innovators in the space as they should be. Right. I think if they saw and, and felt and understood some of the innovations that are out there, it would really help to inform their policymaking. And unfortunately, that connection is, is very rarely made in my experience and in my view. Now, can you request a meeting with, you know, certain parties at CMS uh, to talk about your innovation? You can, uh, you know, you jump through some hoops to get there. Um, Sometimes that is an effective, you know, conversation. But it's not something that everyone knows they're able to do. And frankly, it takes someone with connections at CMS, like, you know, we have developed to be able to get to the right person in, in the right department at CMS to have to take that meeting and to influence change. It is, you know, in my perfect world, we would have at least twice yearly, at least twice yearly meetings where, you know, the private sector and the public sector uh, policymakers, the private sector innovators and the public um, sector, you know, policymakers would gather and would have an open dialogue and demonstrations of and, you know, understanding of the, the things that are out there. Um, it, it's tough to make policy in a vacuum. And unfortunately, that's kind of where we find ourselves, I think. Um mm-hmm. So that's, being, that's, that's sort of the federal government in the commercial payer space. I will say that it varies by commercial payer. Right? Um, uh, some are, are very innovative, and frankly, I am starting to see in the commercial payer space uh, a faster sales cycle. I think in getting some new technologies and new digital health platforms, um, you know, into the mix with with payers. For their beneficiaries specifically. Um, payers are not necessarily waiting anymore for providers to adopt certain types of technologies. Sometimes they're now going straight to their beneficiaries and saying, hey, why don't you use this? So an example is my own, you know, health insurance, um, you know, my, I happen to have Cigna. Um, you know, I got an email from them a few months ago just saying, hey, I uh, do you, you know, do you have some sort of, um, you know, if you have some sort of muscle injury or ache or pain that's keeping you from being as active as you want, you can, try, you can try this digital health platform. We will connect you for a virtual consult with a physical therapist. They will provide recommendations for exercises for you, and we will give you access to this digital health platform to monitor how you're doing with those exercises and provide real-time feedback. That's a payer taking in some initiative, right, to implement an innovative technology and see how it goes. They're not waiting for the, the um, providers to do that. So, so it varies
0: it's It's good to hear that, like you said, that you are finding at least some of the, the the payer landscape you know at least on the commercial end that's being open to this and and from their end, they should be open to this because at the end of the day, if it's better outcomes for their members and their patient population, along with like you said, for some preventative care aspects, some you know really getting in front of of some larger, very costly, but obviously very tragic diseases when it comes to their their healthcare population as well, that they want to be able to innovate, they want to get access to to people to have care earlier on. They want to be able to really look and embrace some of these things. And it's 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 nice to know that there there are some people that are looking to to adopt this even quicker and the sales cycle being less, you know, on the government perspective. I feel you, you kind of hit it in the head is just like health and you mentioned, you know, your own health insurance. And I feel like just like everybody expects or assumes their health insurance premiums are going to go up every year regardless of if anything really changed in terms of their, their health insurance, their benefits, their health in general. Um, it's almost like when it comes to CMS's, CMS's kind of fee schedule and all these things, you're, you're kind of getting ready to take your lumps or take a hit and then have to look for how am I going to adapt? How am I going to pivot? How am I going to look at, like you said, these alt alternative care service lines or delivery service, like just to make up that loss that they're continue to just beat us down on um, when it comes to it too. It's like, it's like they're forcing the, the, okay, well you, you kind of are stopping us or stifling us here. So what else is out there that can allow us to still sustain as a business model? If you're just going to keep cutting our reimbursement. Yep,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, that is, that is certainly the feeling right now. I mean, you know, we continue to see sort of a cross the board reductions and reimbursement for uh, various services. And, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating for uh, providers and for the ecosystem
0: as a well. whole. So where you know, knowing all of that, and obviously I know that you also have a podcast where you know you'd love to kind of showcase your healthcare innovations, talk over with with you know entrepreneurs in the healthcare space, or talk over great digital health platforms um, when it comes to it too. Where where do you kind of focus or excites you the most about the future? Where are you finding those pockets where you know you really feel like there is. Uh, kind of an opening or a, a, an opportunity for change for the better uh, in terms of the future for just, you know, the entire community and audience just to know where they're, they're seeing kind of the most, what they can kind of get on board with and get excited about in terms of, of kind of a better healthcare tomorrow.
1: Yeah, I'll start out with, uh, what I think is an incredible market opportunity and that is in the women's health and femtech space. Uh, you know, I, I actually just recorded a, a podcast with um, Trish Costello's of Portfolio um, around their um, their funds that focus on women's health and, and um, you know femtech, um, femtech technology you know uh, 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 startups and you know it is the case that women's health has been vastly 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 underinvested in. Um, over, you know, throughout time. In fact, you know, it was just 2018 when the very first VC fund dedicated to women's health came into being, wow. which is pretty shocking. I mean, the market opportunity, not only around reproductive health, but around, uh, you know, menopause and around, uh, you know, uh, cancers that specifically affect women and conditions that specifically affect women is tremendous, and it is really largely untapped because it has been um, unfunded. So I think um, we are starting to see a shift in that, fortunately. Um, it is not as fast as I would, would like to see it, but we're definitely starting to see a shift, and we're focusing, um, you know, uh, some, some energy in our firm um, around serving and supporting femtech and women's health um, companies. So that's kind of um, Uh, That's one thing. Um, The next thing that sort of excites me is the notion of more sort of whole person integrated care that really looks at sort of root causes of particular conditions. Um, You know, I think our sort of the the system that we currently live in is, okay, I'm going to diagnose this as X condition and I'm gonna prescribe Y intervention. And sometimes it's just more complicated than X condition, right? Like there there are other factors and sometimes Y intervention may be a part of what can help the patient, but it's not sort of the whole solution. And so, you know, I am seeing more recognition um, uh, that sort of a whole person integrated care approach that incorporates wellness and sleep and diet and sort of inflammatory responses and gut health, right, uh, is, is you know, sort of becoming elevated. And I think that is going to be really, really important going forward. We, you know, are now at the point where we have the capacity to intake tremendous amounts of patient-generated health data, and we have the ability to look at, you know, our individual uh, genome um, and... Create sort of a personalized pathway to health and well-being, um, and and that's just going to continue to grow. So, um, so, I think that's really exciting. And then, I guess finally, I'll say you know, the this um, kind of new focus that especially was elevated during COVID um, around virtual care and virtual care management. So. Like when I say virtual care, I usually like I'm usually talking about something like a telehealth visit. But virtual care management is is more of a like high touch, um, uh, a high touch patient engagement uh, that is staying closely in coordination and collaboration with a patient, particularly those that may have some sort of a chronic condition in between visits to the doctor's office or in between telehealth visits, right? So, so you know, it is often three to six months intervals that even someone with a chronic disease actually goes in for a visit to see their doctor. And what happens during the time when they're not in that, in that office or on that telehealth visit um, is kind of a black hole. We are seeing now that the, uh, like a new understanding that Staying in more continuous contact with that patient to understand how they're doing in between visits and to help and support them in between visits is having tremendous um, impact on, you know, patient outcomes and sort of overall long-term cost of care. So, you know, remote patient monitoring, using uh, devices to transmit patient-generated health data, but also interaction um, on a regular basis with, you know, clinical staff from your provider about your condition and asking how you're doing and are you, you know, do you have enough of your medications and, and how are things going? So long answer, but like lots of exciting stuff.
0: <laughs> that, no, but thank you for sharing all that because like you said, it's, it's, it, it's some of this of what you mentioned is so rational. And you mentioned the femtech space, and and really the just being underserved, and and really all that that needs to change. I mean, health inequity. I know you know COVID nineteen and the pandemic only sh- you know, kind of shed even more light on it, it being such a problem in terms of kind of our healthcare system and and the country and being able to provide you know equal access to care and everybody getting appropriate um, quality of care and service when it comes to their own health. And I think you hit on three areas, and I and I really hope that everybody starts embracing. A lot of this because it makes so much sense, and, and when you hit on the holistic approach at the end, it's it, it, you know I hope that mindset sh- mindset shifts in terms of healthcare providers and physicians to say, it doesn't have to be this assembly line, like you said, react to the situation. Right. It can actually be looked, what can I do proactively? And if I take a moment to just sit back, take a deep breath and reflect on my patient and their overall health, you know, what can I do to get in front of some of these things for them? What can I do to care about other aspects versus like you said, react, diagnose, and then just, you know, shove a solution in for, in, in, in the current uh, antiquated healthcare system, because that's what they've been taught or their, 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 their mindset has been yeah. fixed in. And like, I just hope yeah. that all of this fantastic work that you're talking about doing in these companies and these innovations that we can just get this to be embraced and a mentality change from all of our healthcare providers, but also our healthcare systems, our healthcare executives, that there is a new way and maybe it will take a little time, effort and energy to change, but the the, the outcomes or the possibilities on their side are so much better than what we're living with today. Cause as we know, and you, you've kind of hit on several opportunities, examples of this is not sustainable what we're currently doing today. Like we need to evolve and adapt as as a industry and as a population to really make sure that we're getting solid care, but also we we don't burn out our healthcare workers and also we're not just continuing to push them mm-hmm. to the edge on so much front. So I really appreciate you sharing yeah, all that's of a that. Tr- Gary. <clears throat> Go ahead.
1: Yeah, you have you have hit the head the nail on the head with a tremendous problem, right? The physician burnout and the pre- the provider burnout. Certainly, um, across the you know across the spectrum of practitioners, burnout um, that start that you know um, frankly didn't start with COVID nineteen, but certainly was um, exacerbated by it. Um, And I think there is a fear among um, healthcare practitioners, some healthcare practitioners, of technology and digital health innovations, interventions, and innovations making them obsolete. Right? Like it's sort of a one or the other thing. You either have a doctor or you have a digital health intervention intervention that's, that's, you know, taking care of your healthcare needs. That, I would like to, you know, I would love to find a way for, for, for practitioners to overcome that fear, right? To see digital health interventions and healthcare um, innovations as aids that help them focus on, help them to practice at the top of their license, right? To focus on the most critical and complicated cases where they can can you know lend their mental energy um, instead of dealing instead of spending a lot of time dealing with you know very common sort of everyday kind of plug and chug things. Um, I just I you know uh, I hope that that maybe medical schools will play a role in educating their new physicians about the role that um, you know the beneficial role that that healthcare innovation can can play.
0: I 1000% agree. And I hope it, I hope it can too, because you said it's got to start with the education side, right? It's got to start in medical school early yeah. on before they all of a sudden the current cult following they jump on and, and they and they believe as the one and only way. And then you're trying to, you know, <laughs> change the, their entire mentality of what's been ingrained in them, which we know is, is near impossible at times. So I completely agree with you. We've got to start early with it, but we've got to shift the culture and the mindset and the leadership now, if we have any chance of this being embraced longer term, you know, Carrie, I yep. to actually yep. you know have you on another episode to kind of dive deep in exactly that of of what your your healthcare innovators and what your kind of platforms do to have those providers embrace that change have those systems embrace that change because we've had several guests on that have talked a lot about it and it's such an intriguing conversation of what what everybody's trying to do to break through and really have a solution to making it not only effective but also efficient that you're not waiting years and decades to just get the change that is necessary so you know if if you're up for it, we'd love to kind of hear more about what you're doing on that side because this this has been so amazing to just hear the work that you're doing and the passion that you're bringing to making a better kind of healthcare future for all of us and the companies that you're working alongside and as you've mentioned you're, you're so much more than their attorney or their lawyer when it comes to you're really their strategic partner in terms of building financial models out and all of those and that's where you know in my personal opinion law firms can evolve to being so much more valuable to their clients at the end of the day too so you know I just I, I applaud we all applaud the work that you're doing and and we cannot wait to kind of hear more and and see the journey that you're continuing to take so we can all uh, get excited and motivated about what it's uh, gonna bring to us in a positive way down the road
1: well I really appreciate those kind words um, I, I do and I have enjoyed the conversation immensely and I would be delighted to join you in a future episode um uh talking about whatever whatever it makes sense to talk that's coming down the pike in healthcare you know at the time this, this has been great
0: well, fantastic, Kerry. Thank you again for the time today. We are definitely going to kind of bring you back to talk more about it and can't wait to just hear the questions and feedback we're going to be able to get from our community, from all the thought-provoking um, kind of uh, you know, information that you shared today. But, you know, we, we, we all are, are in better hands knowing people like you and your firm are, are continuing to try to improve kind of uh, what, the care we receive and, and the options we have in the future. And uh, we all cannot uh, wait to see what you do next. So thank you again. And, and we can't wait till next time.
1: Thank you.
0: That's it for this week. Tune in again next week for another illuminating discussion about the changing face of healthcare on The Scope, presented by mobile anesthesiologists. For more, find us online at thescope.zzzmd.com and on Twitter at thescope underscore ma.